Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, General Conference Blowout. April 2017 General Conference is history. And now is the time that Radio Free Mormon is going to go over and analyze the talks from General Conference. Bill Reel from Mormon Discussions and I have already put several hours together going back and forth and talking about our views of many of the parts of General Conference. But even after several hours of discussion between the two of us, there were still a number of points which I did not get to. So this podcast is my opportunity to get to those points. If you are a real glutton for General Conference review podcasts, this is your podcast. Nevertheless, I think that there are a number of themes that came out of General Conference. And I wanted to talk about those themes. When I say theme, I mean points that were raised in one way or another throughout a variety of different talks. The first theme I want to cover is stories in General Conference that talk about how the church is more important than anything else, including your families. There were a number of talks under this heading in General Conference. The first of those talks was given by Elder M. Joseph Brow in the Saturday morning session. Elder Brow told a story about how he had to give up his dog named Blue because his parents got called on a mission when he was 14. He says that he and his family lived on a beautiful ranch in Wyoming. From his perspective, life was perfect. I could come home from school, complete my chores, and be off hunting, fishing, or exploring with my dog. Shortly after he learned about the fact his parents were called to serve a mission, his dad called to preside over a mission, I realized that I would have to give up my dog, Blue. I confronted my father, asking what I should do with Blue. I wanted to emphasize the unfairness of what God was requiring. I will never forget this response. He said, I'm not sure. He probably cannot go with us, so you had better ask Heavenly Father. Elder Brow says, that was not the response I had anticipated. I began reading the Book of Mormon, Elder Brow continues. I earnestly prayed to know if I had to give my dog away. My answer did not come in a moment. Rather, a specific thought kept penetrating my mind. Don't be a burden to your parents. Don't be a burden. I have called your parents. This might be a minor story if the same theme was not repeated over and over again over half a dozen times throughout General Conference. But it's also not a minor story to me because I understand from personal experience how close a bond can be between a young person who's 14 and his or her dog, especially when Elder Brow makes it clear that he was very close to his dog and would be off hunting, fishing, or exploring with his dog. This is a story about how a 14-year-old had to give up his dog because his parents were called to preside over a mission. The next story under this theme is President Russell M. Nelson, who talks about a high school girl who is a member of the church who has to sacrifice participating in a statewide competition for her high school, because the same evening she had committed to participate in a stake relief society meeting. Now, President Nelson doesn't say what the competition for high school was, except to say it was statewide. He also doesn't say what it was that she had committed to do in the Stake Relief Society meeting, whether it was to give a talk, whether it was to say a prayer, whether it was something else. But I think that we can all agree that participating in a statewide competition for high school is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, whereas participating in a Stake Relief Society meeting 
is going to come around and come around and come around many times in a person's life. President Nelson also does not say whether this Laurel's participation in a statewide competition for her high school involved a team that she was on. He doesn't say whether her sacrifice of her ability to be in that competition impacted other people on her team. The main message, however, is that any participation in Relief Society meeting trumps any participation in a statewide competition for high school. The message is that church is more important than anything and everything else, up to and including families. And we'll get to the ones about families later on. So far we've talked about a 14-year-old boy sacrificing his dog Blue for the church. Now we're talking about a high school Laurel sacrificing being in a statewide competition for her high school for the church. Here's what President Nelson says. Recently, I learned of a fearless young Laurel. She was invited to participate in a statewide competition for her high school on the same evening she had committed to participate in a stake relief society meeting. When she realized the conflict and explained to competition officials that she would need to leave the competition early to attend an important meeting, she was told she would be disqualified if she did so. What did this latter-day Laurel do? She kept her commitment to participate in the Relief Society meeting. As promised, she was disqualified from the statewide competition. When asked about her decision, she replied simply, Well, the church is more important, isn't it? It may be clear that she felt it was more important. The problem I have is the pressure this puts on every other person in the church listening to President Nelson's talk that they feel compelled to reach the same conclusion. Indeed, if looked at objectively, one might wonder whether the Relief Society presidency should have told this Laurel, you go ahead, you participate in the statewide competition, we'll cover for you. That might have been the Christ-like thing to do, but apparently it didn't occur to anybody in this situation. Number three under this category, Elder Gary B. Sabin tells a story about a friend of his dad's who was converted and baptized by his dad. His name was Dale. And he tells a story about Dale and Dale's wife, Mary Olive, how after they were converted by his dad during the war, Elder Sabin tells a story about how after the war was over, in 1946, Dale was called to serve a mission by Heber J. Grant. Here's the story in his own words. Near the end of the war, President Heber J. Grant called for missionaries, including some married men. In 1946, Dale and his wife, Mary Olive, decided Dale should serve, even though they were expecting their first child. So in 1946, Dale goes off to serve a mission, leaving his pregnant wife at home to deliver their child and bring it up for the next several years while he is serving the church. Once again, this story has the theme that the church is more important than anything and everything else, including members of your family. The very next talk in General Conference by Elder Valerie Cordone is a classic example of how the church is more important than anything else, including your family. In this case, it's including your children. In this case, it's including feeding your own children. This is a story he tells about how his parents, when faced with the choice of paying tithing to the church or feeding their children, chose to pay tithing to the church. Here's what he says. After some events related to a civil war in Central America, my father's business went bankrupt. He went from about 200 full-time employees to fewer than five sewing operators who worked as needed in the garage of our home. One day, during those difficult times, I heard my parents discussing whether they should pay tithing or buy food for the children. Think about that. Think about being a child 
and hearing your parents have this discussion. On Sunday, I followed my father to see what he was going to do. Well, is he going to pay tithing, or is he going to feed the children? I added that last part. After our church meetings, I saw him take an envelope and put his tithing in it. That was only part of the lesson. The question that remained for me was what we were going to eat. This is followed by the expected miracle story about how the very next day help came from an unexpected quarter and money was given to his dad so that they could eat after all because he was faithful in paying his tithing. The question remains, what happens in all the instances where a parent makes that decision to pay money to the church instead of putting food in the mouths of the children and the miracle does not come through. And what happens to all the people who are hearing this talk, who take it to heart, and when faced with that same dilemma, decide that they should pay money to the church instead of feeding their own children? This talk was highly controversial for good reason and illustrates perfectly this theme that came out in conference, not just here, but in other places that I've mentioned and more that I'll mention hereafter about how the church is more important than anything, including your family. The only thing that makes this more ironic is that in between sessions of general conference, the church is playing all these commercials, all these promotional videos that the church puts out about how important the family is and about how anything and everything should be sacrificed in order to spend time with your family. The church is speaking out of both sides of its mouth. On the one hand, it will present commercials that portray a good parent as sacrificing other pursuits in order to spend time with the family. But when you get down to the stories and the themes of General Conference, the message is the opposite. The message is activity in the church and paying money to the church is more important than anything else, including your family. Example number five is a talk given by Yoon Huan Choi. He actually gives us example number five and example number six. Example number five has to do with a story that he told that happened while he was serving as the president of the mission in Seattle, Washington. Here's what he says. While still serving in the Seattle mission, I received a phone call from my oldest son, Sunbeam who is a pianist. He said he would have the privilege of performing at Carnegie Hall in New York because he won an international competition. We were so happy and very thrilled for him. However, that evening, while praying with gratitude, my wife recognized that we could not join him for his performance and said to Heavenly Father something like this. By the way, we could not join him for his performance apparently means that mission rules forbade them from leaving the mission boundaries in order to go to New York. She prayed to Heavenly Father something like this, Heavenly Father, I am grateful for the blessing thou hast given to Sunbeam. By the way, I am sorry that I cannot go there. I could have gone if thou had given this blessing either before or after this mission. I am not complaining, but I have a little feeling of sorry. Elder Choi goes on with the story. As soon as she finished this prayer, she heard a clear voice. Because you cannot go, your son has been given this privilege. Would you rather trade? So in this story, not only is a mother and father forbidden by church policy to attend a performance by their son at Carnegie Hall because they're on a mission at the time, the message is given that the reason that the son won this international competition and was able to perform at Carnegie Hall in New York was because the mother 
could not go to see him perform. Let me read that last line again. As soon as she finished this prayer, she heard a clear voice, Because you cannot go, your son has been given this privilege. Would you rather trade? It seems an odd way to end this story, but the overall message is clear that the church is more important than anything else, including your family. Elder Choi tells another story, which ends up being example number six, and he talks about when he was released from his calling as a stake president. Every Mormon knows that when you're a bishop, your time is consumed with church service, you have little time left for your family, and that only gets worse if you are a stake president. Well, Elder Choi was a stake president. He could spend little time with his family due, first off, to whatever it was his career was, and then on top of that, all the church service he had to give as a stake president. He says, when I was released from my calling as a stake president, my sons were excited about spending more time with me. Three weeks later, I was called as a 70. This line is greeted by laughter from the audience. Everybody knows where this is going, and everybody seems to think it's funny. Elder Choi goes on, At first, I thought they might be disappointed, but my youngest son's humble response was, Daddy, don't worry. We are an eternal family. So here's really the overriding theme in the LDS Church. We will say that your family is the most important thing, but really when it comes down to it, the church is more important, and if you serve extensively in the church at the sacrifice of spending time with your children and your family, that will all be made up in the next life. Elder Choi continued, What a simple and clear truth it was. I worried a little because I looked around at this mortal life first. But my son was happy because he did not look around, but looked up with eyes toward eternity and the purposes of the Lord. So this is example number six. And here we get into the theological underpinnings of how it is that the church can apparently feel justified in having its members sacrifice their family for the church because through doing that, they will have their family forever. Example number seven and eight both come from the talk by C. Scott Grow, which I can't say without laughing because it sounds like C. Spot Run, except this is C. Scott Grow. It's a, his first initial is C, and then Scott Grow is his name. So C. Scott Grow, Elder C. Scott Grow, gave this example, number seven. He'll also give an example of number eight. And what he's talking about here is the parents of his wife. And he's listing out some examples of people in his family, his wife's family specifically, who sacrificed for the church. And what he ends up talking about is examples where his wife's parents sacrificed family sacrificed education for the church and it's all done in a way to show this is a good thing and all the listeners should follow this example. Here's the first thing that he said. His wife's name is Rhonda. When Rhonda's parents had been married for just a couple of years, her 23-year-old dad was called to serve a full-time mission. He left behind his young wife, and their two-year-old daughter. Now, if you take the church out of it, if you take the mission out of it, if you take all those other things out of it, what this would amount to is abandonment. He abandons his wife, he abandons his two-year-old child, but he does it to serve a mission, so therefore it's a good thing. Elder Grow goes on. It gets worse. Then, his wife was called to serve with him during the last seven months of his mission. So what do they do with the little girl? 
they left their daughter in the care of relatives. Let me read that quote. Then his wife was called to serve with him during the last seven months of his mission, leaving their daughter in the care of relatives. That is quote unquote from his talk. And this is supposed to be a good example. So first the husband leaves his wife and their two-year-old child, and then for the last seven months of his mission, his wife joins him. What do they do with the little girl? Well, it's kind of like what happened with Blue. They give her to somebody else to take care of while they're off serving the church. The next example is from the same talk, and it's in the very next story that he tells about the same people, Rhonda's parents. So her dad, who's 23 years old, goes off to serve the mission. We've already talked about that. And then he says, a few years later, now with four children, they moved to Missoula, Montana, so her dad could attend the university. However, they had been there only a few months when President Spencer W. Kimball and Elder Marquis Peterson extended a call to my father-in-law to be the first president of the newly created Missoula Stake. He was only 34. Thoughts of the university were left behind as he sought to do the Lord's will, not his own. So once again, we have this family sacrificing for the church. He's sacrificing his education, which means he was sacrificing to some extent, his career. And how does this story mesh with the other messages we get from the church? That education is important, and we need to seek after education and become trained and get a good-paying career. Well, apparently, that message is true, but only if it doesn't conflict with serving the church. So that is the last story that I found under this theme of The church is more important than anything else in the world, including your family. The next theme that caught my eye was the following. The stories that talk about how there are no real miracles in the church today. And even the miracle stories that are told have to be embellished in order to be ready for prime time. I counted about a half a dozen of these as well. The first such story is from Weatherford Clayton, who was apparently... A doctor. Let me read this story. Another of the great blessings of my life has been to feel the closeness of heaven during those moments when I sit at the bedside of people as they pass away. Please notice this. There are no stories in general conference of people being healed miraculously by the priesthood. What we always hear, and what I have heard as far as back as I can remember, is stories of people dying in spite of their faithfulness and in spite of priesthood blessings. He goes on, Early one morning, some years ago, I entered the hospital room of a faithful Latter-day Saint widow who had cancer. Two of her daughters were sitting with her. As I went to her bedside, I quickly discovered that she was no longer suffering because she had just died. Now, she's a faithful Latter-day Saint. She's in the hospital. She has cancer. It's obvious to me that she had had a priesthood blessing and probably numerous priesthood blessings, but none of them were of any effect. Believe me, if they had been, they would have been front and center in this story. Instead, what is focused on is the peace that she has now that she's passed away. Elder Clayton goes on, In that moment of death, the room was filled with peace. Her daughters had a sweet sadness, but their hearts were filled with faith. They knew that their mother was not gone, but had returned home. Now, certainly not everybody who gets a priesthood blessing, is going to be miraculously healed. But we would like to think that in a church that proclaims the power of the priesthood, that teaches that healings can happen miraculously, 
there would be at least one story in general conference of something like that happening instead of the repeated refrain of people dying who are faithful, who are not miraculously healed by the power of the priesthood. When you hear this refrain, it almost becomes an anti-priesthood testimony. The next talk in this regard is Elder Ulysses Suarez, who says, Years ago, while serving as a mission president, I received a phone call from the parents of one of our beloved missionaries, informing me about the death of his sister. I remember in the tenderness of that moment, that missionary and I discussed God's marvelous plan of salvation for his children and how this knowledge would comfort him. So, it's the knowledge of the plan of salvation that comforts this missionary, not a miracle that saves his sister's life. Now, the details of this story do not make it clear whether this was an accident that happened, something that struck from out of the blue, or whether it was some kind of disease that took this sister's life. But nevertheless, you will see that it fits in with the theme that there are no real miracles in the church today. And even the miracle stories that are told have to be embellished in order to be ready for prime time. Which takes us to Elder Bragg. And in this talk, he told a story about the firefighters in Southern California. And we talked about this in detail on the other episode with Bill Reel. So the details are there. I'm just going to touch on it to give it as another example of a story that is told as a miraculous story of firefighters being ordered back into a burning stake center to retrieve pictures of Christ off the wall, when in actuality, what really happened is the fire was completely out and they went back into the rubble to get these pictures off the wall. It was a nice thing for them to do, but it was hardly miraculous, and it was not a very good example of the light of Christ inspiring the battalion commander to order his men back into a burning building to get some church prints out of harm's way. The fourth story is just tangentially mentioned by Elder Gary Sabin once again. It is one line, and in this story he simply says, our son, Justin, passed away at age 19 after fighting a lifelong disease. Now that is tragic. It is awful. And my heart goes out to Elder Sabin and his family to have this horrible thing happen. I am not mocking it. I am not making fun of it. All I am doing is noting that this is the fourth example in general conference of no miracle happening. Justin, the son had a lifelong disease, which is a horrible thing. But obviously, to me anyway, he had numerous priesthood blessings during this time, none of which apparently had the desired miraculous effect. The fifth story under this heading is told by Elder Neil Anderson. And this one is remarkable because it actually talks about giving priesthood blessings to another person. They didn't help, and the person who received the blessings was puzzled because they didn't help. This is when he's talking about his fellow general authority, Bruce Porter, who had passed away last December. He talks about Bruce Porter and all the things that he did for the church. But then he goes into a story about how Elder Bruce Porter passed away from cancer. This is a quote from the talk. When his health did not improve, after several priesthood blessings, Bruce was puzzled. Well, of course he would be puzzled. Elder Anderson has just gone into detail about all the church service and all the sacrifice that Elder Porter made during his career as a local authority and then as a general authority. Who more than Elder Porter would be faithful enough to have a priesthood blessing that would be effective, that would cause a cure, 
that would miraculously restore him to health. But it didn't happen, and Bruce Porter was puzzled because of it. Here's the quote again. When his health did not improve after several priesthood blessings, Bruce was puzzled, but he knew in whom he trusted. In 2010, Bruce received a kidney from his son. This time, his body did not reject the transplant. It was a miracle. That's the end of the quote there. So, we have an incredible contrast here. First off, I give props to Elder Anderson for actually mentioning the fact that Elder Porter got several priesthood blessings, that they didn't work, and that Elder Porter was puzzled because they didn't work. But then he goes on to say that the scientific and medical procedure of Bruce receiving a kidney from his son worked, and it's this kidney transplant that Elder Anderson calls the miracle. So it seems we've come to a point in LDS history where miracles are no longer expected or anticipated through priesthood administration, but if there is a successful medical operation, then we will call that the miracle. When was the last time we heard about an actual healing? This puts me in mind of a talk told by President Eyring a few conferences ago. It was actually the 2011 General Conference in which President Eyring gave a talk titled A Witness, where he goes through a number of stories which are extremely unmiraculous. I'm not exactly sure what his witness is supposed to be unless it is that healings no longer occur in the church. Here's the first of his stories in his own words. I visited the hospital room of an old friend who had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. I took with me my two young daughters. I did not expect that she would even be able to recognize them. Her own family were gathered, standing around her bed as we entered. She looked up and smiled. I will always remember her look as she saw that we had brought our daughters with us. She motioned them to come close to her on the bed. She sat up, held them, and introduced them to her family. She spoke of the greatness of those two little girls. It was as if she were presenting princesses to a royal court. I expected our visit to end quickly. Surely, I thought, she is tired. But as I watched, it was as if the years melted away. She was radiant and obviously filled with love for all of us. She seemed to savor the moment, as if time had stopped. She had spent most of her life succoring children for the Lord. She knew from the account in the Book of Mormon that the resurrected Savior had taken little children one by one, blessed them, and then wept for joy. She had experienced that joy long enough herself to be able to endure in His loving service to the end. Period. End of story. No blessing, no healing, no recovery. President Eyring quickly goes on to another story about no healing, and this one is even worse than the first. Going on with the stories... I saw that same miracle. Uh, what miracle is this he's talking about exactly? I saw that same miracle in the bedroom of a man who had given sufficient faithful service to think that he had done enough to rest. I knew that he had undergone lengthy and painful treatment for a disease and had been told by the doctors that it was terminal. They offered neither treatment nor hope. His wife took me to his bedroom in their home. There he was, lying on his back on the top of the carefully made-up bed. He wore a freshly pressed white shirt, a tie, and new shoes. He saw the look of surprise in my eyes, laughed quietly, and explained, After you give me a blessing, I want to be ready to respond to the call to take up my bed and go to work. Now, the real problem with this story is that Elder Iring delivers this as a laugh line, and the audience understands it's a laugh line. Because President Eyring knows 
that there will be no healing of this man, there will be no exercise of priesthood authority, there will be no miraculous intervention of God, and just as bad, the audience understands it too. The audience knows it's a laugh line. The audience knows there will be no miracle. And therefore, President Eyring delivers this as a laugh line, and the audience understands it as a laugh line, and laughs. Going back to the laugh line, he saw the look of surprise in my eyes, laughed quietly, and explained, After you give me a blessing, I want to be ready to respond to the call to take up my bed and go to work. As it turned out, he was ready for the interview he would soon have with the master for whom he had worked so faithfully. And so all of his faithful work for the master results in zippo, nada, nothing when it comes time to need a priesthood blessing to heal him from cancer. President Eyring goes on. He was an example of the fully converted Latter-day Saints I meet often after they have given a life of dedicated service. They press on. Well, apparently they press on in the next life because they sure as hell aren't pressing on in this life. Thanks to the no-priesthood, non-miracle of President Eyring. But that's not all the stories that President Eyring has to tell us in this October 2011 talk. Even before he gets to the stories about the faithful Latter-day Saints who were not healed by the priesthood, he throws in another story in which he takes a commonplace coincidence and characterizes it as a miracle as great as the parting of the Red Sea. Here's a story. President Eyring, when he was a junior apostle, was invited to speak at a university and give their commencement address when the person who was responsible for inviting him found out that he was an apostle and that it was his duty to bear witness of Jesus Christ, this person called him and said, Hey, you can't do that here. There will be no bearing your witness of Jesus Christ during the commencement address. Elder Iring goes on with the story. I hung up the phone with serious questions in my mind. Should I tell the university that I would not keep my agreement to speak? It was only two weeks before the event. My appearance there had been announced. What effect would my failing to keep my agreement have on the good name of the church. I prayed to know what God would have me do. The answer came in a surprising way to me. I realized that the examples of Nephi, Abinadi, Alma, Amulek, and the sons of Mosiah applied to what I was. They were bold witnesses of Jesus Christ in the face of deadly peril. So the only choice to be made was how to prepare. I dug into everything I could learn about the university. As the day of the talk grew closer, my anxiety rose and my prayers intensified. Now he gets to the miracle which is where he happens to see a newspaper article. And this is how he characterizes it. These are his words. In a miracle, like the Red Sea parting, I found a news article. That university had been honored for doing what the church has learned to do in our humanitarian efforts across the world. And so in my talk, I described what we and they had done to lift people in great need. I said that I knew that Jesus Christ was the source of the blessings that had come into the lives of those we and they had served. After the meeting, the audience rose to applaud, which seemed a little unusual to me. I was amazed, but still a little anxious. I remembered what happened to Abinadi, another laugh line. Only Alma had accepted his witness, but that night, at a large formal dinner, I heard the university president say that in my talk he heard the words of God. Now, still Elder Eyring's words, now, such a miraculous deliverance. See, this is a miraculous deliverance that he's experienced in giving this university talk, where apparently if he'd actually said, I'm a witness of Jesus Christ, he might have gotten tarred and feathered. Going on with his quote, Now, such a miraculous deliverance 
is rare in my experience as a witness of Christ. So not only is this tiny little coincidence of happening upon a newspaper article and getting a bright idea about how to squeeze Jesus Christ into his talk without offending the university that he's speaking at, a miracle as great as the parting of the Red Sea, such a miraculous deliverance as this coincidence is rare in his experience as a witness of Jesus Christ. And so, in one talk, Elder Eyring gives us a simple coincidence of opening a newspaper and happening upon a newspaper article that gives him an idea as to how to approach a talk, something that has probably happened to virtually everybody who's ever given any number of talks in the history of mankind. But that simple coincidence becomes a miracle as great as the parting of the Red Sea. And in the same talk, later on, he will give an example of two people who are faithful Latter-day Saints, who are terminal, they're in the hospital, and they croak. Because he shows up, there's no priesthood to be had, there's no healing blessings here, apparently God is no longer involved in the lives of the Latter-day Saints, and it's curtain for you, pal. But this is a classic case of the fact that Mormonism apparently is at a point where even though it teaches that priesthood blessings can heal people, the stories told in General Conference do not bear that out. I mean, are you telling me that if any of the general authorities knew of a legitimate healing through priesthood administration, they wouldn't be sharing it in general conference? But instead, all we get are story after story after story of faithful Latter-day Saints getting priesthood blessings, but they die anyway. Elder Anderson concludes his story about Bruce Porter on December 26th of last year. After fighting continuous infections in a hospital in Salt Lake City, he asked the doctors to leave the room. Bruce told Susan, his wife, that he knew through the Spirit that there was nothing the doctors could do that would save his life. He knew that Heavenly Father would take him home. He was filled with peace. End quote. So once again, there's the theme. He passes away, but he was filled with peace. So the miracle comes not from any kind of miraculous healing, but from being filled with peace because Bruce Porter was told by the Spirit that there was nothing the doctors could do that would save his life, and apparently there was nothing God could do that would save his life either. Where is the priesthood in all this? The next story, which is sort of a bookend story to the one by Elder Bragg about the highly embellished account of how the fire commander in Los Angeles was inspired so much by the light of Christ to send his men back into a burning building to get church prints off the walls, is a story told by Gary Stevenson. Elder Stevenson told the story about the tsunami in Japan, and we also went over this story in detail and broke it down and analyzed it in the other podcast with Bill Reel. In short, Elder Stevenson constructs a narrative that gives an impression of a miraculous inspiration to a mission president that calls all of his missionaries to an inland leadership conference so that they are safe from the tsunami that strikes on March 11, 2011. But when we break it down, we see that that's not really the case, that the elders from one city in the south were called in, but the elders in all the other coastal cities to the north of there, including sisters, were not called in. And we know this not from speculation, but from analyzing the words that the mission president himself wrote later that month in a letter to the parents of the missionaries to let them know what was going on. So once again, this is the other example, along with Elder Bragg's talk, of how not only are there no stories talking about how there are any real miracles in the church today, but in the two examples where miracle stories are shared, 
we find out that they actually have to be embellished in order to be miraculous enough to be shared at General Conference. And as I mentioned on the other podcast, this is very dangerous territory to get into when you represent a church that is based on the telling of miraculous stories. Because if you are standing before the general membership of the church as a leader of the church and telling a story that you embellish to make it sound more miraculous than it really was, what are you doing to the faith of the members who are believing stories told by early leaders of the church that sound awfully miraculous? The question has got to occur to some people. Are the leaders today doing the same thing as early leaders of the church. Is it possible that early leaders of the church also highly embellished events in order to make them sound more miraculous? And what do we do if we build our faith on the miraculous account only to find out that it really wasn't that miraculous after all? So those are two of the three themes that popped out at me while listening to and studying and analyzing this past general conference. The third theme that popped out at me and that appears in a number of stories, is similar to number two, but it's different in an important way. This is the third theme, that almost every supernatural manifestation of the gifts of the Spirit has to be dumbed down to be virtually meaningless. From revelation to prophecy to healings, there is a constant dumbing down going on. People are never healed, they all die, and some receive priesthood blessings, and are perplexed that they are not healed. As I say, there's a little bit of overlap between this theme and the theme that I just discussed. For example, the miracle with Elder Bruce Porter is dumbed down. It's not the priesthood blessing that gives the miracle. It is a medical procedure that is called the miracle. But I want to add to that other examples where it seems that in a church that proclaims the spiritual gifts and has it as an article of faith that we believe in these gifts, We don't hear any stories about the exercise of these spiritual gifts. Instead, what we hear are stories which take the mundane, the pedestrian, what pretty much everybody experiences, and tries to call these experiences gifts of the Spirit. President Eyring does this at the beginning. He talks about family research, family history, and he talks about the Internet's power to enhance communications and how it has enabled families to work together to do family history research with a speed and thoroughness never before possible. He asks, why is all this happening? And he answers the question, for lack of a better term, we call it the spirit of Elijah. He then says we could also equally call it fulfillment of prophecy. So the fact that the Internet's power to enhance communications has allowed family history work to go forward. For President Eyring, this is the spirit of Elijah. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. So this is an example of what I talk about when I say that the spirit of prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is dumbed down in order to make it absolutely commonplace. President Eyring goes on and he says, quote, The affection you feel for your ancestors is part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. Really? Affection for your ancestors means a prophecy has been fulfilled. This is also part of the dumbing down. I would expect that most people have a feeling of affection for their ancestors. But to call something that pretty much everyone experiences a fulfillment of prophecy is part of that dumbing down that I'm referring to. We don't really have gifts of the Spirit being manifested anymore. And so we pretend that we do and we recast the gifts of the Spirit as things that happen to pretty much 
everybody. President Iron goes on with another example, and he tells a story about a computer salesman many, many years ago who went to the church right after computers were invented, wanted to sell the church computers, and as a selling point said, this will help you do your genealogy. And what the salesman said was, as I saw the magnitude of what they were trying to do, I realized I had discovered the reason for the invention of computers. That's what Elder Eyring quotes the salesman as saying, and then Elder Eyring goes on and responds to that saying, well, he was partially right. Computers would be an important part of the future of family history work, just not the computers he was selling. An inspired leader of the church chose not to buy his computers. The church chose to wait for technology that at the time had not yet even been imagined. So here President Eyring is taking a business decision by a church leader to not buy computers from this particular salesman and making it into revelation. He says it was an inspired leader of the church who chose not to buy his computers. And in case it's not clear enough that he's calling it revelation, he goes on to specifically say, quote, Even the best technology can never be a substitute for revelation from heaven like the kind that church leader received. Unquote. So now, a business decision to not buy computers from a certain salesman becomes a revelation. Again, part of the dumbing down process of the gifts of the Spirit. President Eyring, who seems to have a penchant for these types of stories, goes on and gives another one in this one talk. He talks about a time when he was doing family history research, and the computer presented him with two names. And the issue was whether these were two different names that belonged to the same person, or whether they were two different names that actually represented two different people. He tells a story of how he had a consultant at his side to help him do his family history. And not only that, he had a consultant on the phone at the same time to do his family history. And he asked his consultants, what should I do? I can't come up with the answer as to whether these two different names are the same person or different people. How do I proceed? The consultants shrug their shoulders and they say, this one's on you, President Eyring. And so President Eyring says he prays and he gets an answer. Now, he doesn't tell us what the answer is, but here's what he says. As I prayed, I knew with surety what to do, just as I have in other situations when I needed to rely on heaven's help to solve a problem. Now, President Eyring doesn't tell us what the experience was. He doesn't tell us what the answer was, but it's pretty obvious to me what the answer was, even though he doesn't want to tell us. And if I'm wrong, I hope President Eyring hears this and will correct me. But here's what happened. If I'm in President Eyring's situation, I've got two names in front of me that could be different people or they could be the same person. My consultants can't help me. What is the logical thing to do? Well, you're going to baptize both of them and let God sort it out. That's the obvious answer. And I would bet you dollars to donuts that's exactly what President Eyring did in this situation. The next example of dumbing down revelation comes from Elder Joseph Brow, the guy who had to give up his dog Blue because his dad got called as a mission president. Here's a story he tells. At one such time, I sought Heavenly Father's counsel through constant and heartfelt prayer for more than a year to find the solution to a difficult situation. Now, he doesn't tell us what the difficult situation is. He just tells us he was going through something bad, and he prays to God for over a year to find a solution. I knew logically that Heavenly Father answers all sincere prayers. Okay, let me break in just to correct him. He doesn't know that logically. That's a faith claim, and it's a faith-based belief. He doesn't know it logically, but he does believe that Heavenly Father answers all sincere prayers. Going on. Yet, I reached such desperation one day that I attended the temple with one question, Heavenly Father, 
do you really care? So now we've shifted from the difficult situation that he has been praying to God about for over a year. We come to the point where he's at the end of his rope and he's wondering if God even cares about him because he's been silent in spite of his prayers for over a year. Here's what happens. I was sitting near the back of the Logan, Utah Temple waiting room. When, to my surprise, entering the room that day was the temple president, Von J. Featherstone, a close family friend. Notice that Elder Featherstone is a close family friend. Elder Brow knows Von Featherstone. Von Featherstone knows Elder Brow at the time, which is going to make what happens next decidedly less miraculous. Elder Brow continues, He, Von J. Featherstone, stood at the front of the congregation and welcomed all of us. When he noticed me among the temple patrons, he stopped speaking looked me in the eyes, and then said, Brother Brow, it is good to see you in the temple today. That's it. That's all that Von J. Featherstone does, which is a nice thing for him to say, and I'm sure it would mean a lot to Elder Brow, but here's his takeaway from it. His takeaway from it is that this courtesy, this commonplace courtesy by Elder Featherstone becomes revelation to him from God. It is the answer to his prayer. This is how he concludes this story. I will never forget the feeling of that simple moment. It was as if, in that greeting, Heavenly Father was stretching forth his hand and saying, Here am I. So, here's an individual who has a year-long problem. He's praying for over a year. He can't get an answer from God. He comes to the point where he wonders if God even knows he exists. He goes to the temple. There's some kind of meeting. A family friend, who also happens to be a general authority, sees him there and says, It's good to see you today. And that becomes the answer from God that God really is there. What it was that was his difficult situation apparently never gets dressed. At least he never brings it up again during this conference address. The next talk where this happens is by Elder Ronald Rasban, one of the three new apostles, where he talks about the Holy Ghost and recognizing the Spirit. And he talks about recognizing the Spirit in very mundane terms. He specifically says not to expect any fireworks from the Spirit because we wouldn't want to tax God or anything and think he might do something miraculous. Here's the quote from Elder Rasbin. My experience has been that the Spirit most often communicates as a feeling. You feel it in words that are familiar to you, that make sense to you, that prompt you. We're very familiar in Mormonism with the Spirit being characterized as a feeling. But Elder Rasban goes further and makes it clear that the Spirit is felt in words that are familiar to you. In other words, the Spirit is not going to tell you something that is not familiar to you. In other words, the Spirit is not going to tell you anything new or different from what you already believe. In other words, the Spirit is not going to tell you anything different from what your church leaders tell you. In other words, the Spirit is there only to confirm things that you already believe to be true. Elder Rasban goes further to define the Spirit as simply first promptings that a person receives in a given situation. Now, everybody receives promptings at one time or another. You don't have to be a Mormon to receive promptings. But Elder Rasban says that your promptings are given to you by the Spirit, and the first prompting is the one that you should follow. Here's the quote. We must be confident in our first promptings. Sometimes we rationalize. We wonder if we are feeling a spiritual impression or if it is just our own thoughts. When we begin to second-guess, even third-guess, our feelings, and we all have, we are dismissing the Spirit. So here's another example of taking something that everybody experiences and calling that the Spirit revealing the will of God to us. This is inspiration. 
If you receive it as a Mormon, it's inspiration. But when other people receive it, who are not Mormons, is it somehow just a prompting and not an inspiration at that point? He doesn't answer that question. Continuing with the quote, when we begin to second guess, we are dismissing the spirit. We are questioning divine counsel. The prophet Joseph Smith taught that if you will listen to the first promptings, you will get it right nine times out of ten. Now a caution, and here's his caution. Don't expect fireworks because you responded to the Holy Ghost. Remember, you are about the work of the still, small voice. And here we go back to this very common theme within Mormonism of the still, small voice. This is how the Spirit speaks through the still, small voice. There are no fireworks. There's nothing miraculous. Don't get your expectations up that God is actually going to intervene in some kind of remarkable way because those days are apparently past us and it's a dumbing down of expectations, a dumbing down of gifts of the Spirit, a dumbing down of God working in miraculous ways in the lives of the Latter-day Saints. What is really interesting is that after he says, don't expect fireworks, he retells the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal. Now, the crazy thing about that is that is one story from the Bible that has fireworks. The priests of Baal, they go and they do all their prayers and everything to try and get God, Baal, their God, to ignite the sacrifice. Everybody knows a story, but they're unsuccessful. And then Elijah shows up, makes one prayer to Jehovah, the God of Israel, and whoosh, here come down the fireworks. It ignites the sacrifice bulls, dries up all the water that's been in the ditches. It is a huge story of fireworks. And yet, when Elder Rasban retells the story, he omits the fireworks part from it and goes from the priests of Baal to Elijah's experience with the still small voice. Here's how he tells it. I'm going to read this quickly, but I'm not skipping anything. This is the way it appears in the talk by Elder Rasban. In the Old Testament, Elijah contended with the priests of Baal. The priests expected the voice of Baal to come down as thunder and light their sacrifice with fire, but there was no voice and there was no fire. Then he skips what happened with Elijah and goes on. On a later occasion, Elijah prayed, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains, and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire a still small voice. Now it might have been interesting if Elder Rasban had compared the fact that God was in the fire during the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal, but now for some reason there's a story where God is not in the fire, but he's in the still small voice. But Elder Rasban does not do that. Instead, he first warns, contemporary Latter-day Saints don't expect any fireworks from the Holy Ghost. Then he retells the story of Elijah where he leaves out the most famous part which is the fireworks and then he goes right to a later story where it talks about God not being in the fire but in a still small voice. Once again now to President Eyring we're still on this theme of how there is a constant dumbing down of miracle stories of spiritual gifts in the church to not take them literally to not believe that God intervenes in any meaningful way in the lives of the Latter-day Saints. Here's President Eyring's story. He quotes from the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 14, where it talks about the priesthood and the power that people have who hold the priesthood of God. It's remarkable powers. It's incredible powers. And then he immediately dumbs it down. Here's what he says, quote, Everyone being ordained after this order and calling, 
should have power by faith to break mountains, to divide the seas, to dry up waters, to turn them out of their course, to put at defiance the armies of nations, to divide the earth, to break every band, to stand in the presence of God, to do all things according to his will, according to his command, subdue principalities and powers, and this by the will of the Son of God, which was from before the foundation of the world. So that's the quote from the Joseph Smith translation that President Eyring gives in his talk. Then he turns around and gives two different ways of interpreting this passage of scripture from the Joseph Smith translation. The first way he gives is to assume that it doesn't apply to us anymore. The second way is to interpret it figuratively so that it really doesn't apply to it anymore. But what is significant is that President Eyring doesn't even bring up the possibility of understanding this literally. This is how far down the road we have come in the LDS Church from its inception. Here's what he says, quote, One way to respond to such awe-inspiring descriptions of the power of the priesthood is to assume that they do not apply to us. So that's his first way. Here's the second way. Another way to respond is with soul-searching questions asked in our own hearts such as these. Have I ever felt that the heavens have been opened to me? Would anyone use the phrase, ministering of angels, to describe my priesthood service? Do I bring the power of godliness into the lives of those I serve? Have I ever broken a mountain, defied an army, broken someone's bands, or subdued worldly powers, even if only figuratively? Those are President Eyring's words in the talk, even if only figuratively, in order to accomplish God's will. End of quote. So those are the two ways that President Eyring has of responding to the scriptures that talk about the miraculous powers able to be exercised by holders of the priesthood. You can either respond to it by saying they don't apply to us, or you can respond to it by saying, well, they don't really apply to us literally, but if we take it figuratively, yeah, they could apply to us still today. Which ultimately ends up with the bottom line of they don't really apply to us today. President Eyring goes on to do the exact same thing in the exact same talk. And now he quotes from the book of Moses talking about Enoch. Here's the quote. Behold, my spirit is upon you. Wherefore, all thy words will I justify, and the mountains shall flee before you, and the rivers shall turn from their course, and thou shalt abide in me, and I in you. Therefore, walk with me. President Eyring is pretty much dispensed with all the other miraculous things by simply saying, well, these are figurative and they don't really apply literally anymore. And now he's going to focus on the last part, therefore walk with me, which is the Lord speaking unto Enoch in this passage from Moses chapter 6, verses 32 and 34, which he quotes. And here's what President Eyring says about that. Brethren, our ordination to the priesthood is an invitation from the Lord to walk with him. And what does it mean to walk with the Lord? It means to do what he does to serve the way he serves. So once again, walking with the Lord is interpreted in a non-literal sense, made purely figurative, and the miraculous is drained out of it, like the blood from one of Dracula's victims. There is no blood left in the body of the church. There is no spirit left in the body of the church. All we hear in general conference are stories dumbing down the miraculous, dumbing down the gifts of the spirit, and dumbing down the expectation that members should have from the priesthood and from their leaders. There were also a couple of warnings in general conference about exposure to satanic influence. 
Elder Ulysses Suarez gave one of these. He said, In these moments of trial, the adversary, who is always on the lookout, tries to use our logic and reasoning against us. Think about that. Satan, the adversary, uses logic and reason against us. So anytime logic or reason tells you that what you're being told at church is not true or may be suspicious or may be questionable from a historical point of view, that's Satan. Satan is the one who's in charge of logic and reason. Not God, apparently. God wants you to believe things in spite of logic and reason, even though, presumably, God is the one who gave us our brains to use in the first place. This reminds me of what Hamlet says. Sure, he that made us, that would be God, sure, he that made us with such large discourse, looking before and after, that means in the future and in the past, looking before and after, gave us not that capability and godlike reason to fust in us unused. So what he's saying is, surely God did not give us godlike reason to waste away in us and for us not to use it. God, who gave us reason, surely wants us to use it. But now, in general conference in the LDS Church, we have a different point of view being expressed. Once again, the quote, In these moments of trial, the adversary, who is always on the lookout, tries to use our logic and reasoning against us. He tries to convince us that it is useless to live the principles of the gospel. Please remember that the logic of the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Now what Elder Suarez does here is he splices a scripture with something that is not in the scripture in order to give a message that is not in the scripture. The scripture from the New Testament says that the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. But Elder Suarez adds to that and says that the logic of the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. So once again, he pits logic and reasoning against the things of God. And if it comes to a point where you need to sacrifice your logic and your reasoning in order to justify your beliefs, then logic goes out the window and beliefs win the day. In a way, this is another example of the theme of how anything and everything outside the church cannot possibly be as important as the church. We're not only supposed to sacrifice our dogs. We're not only supposed to sacrifice participation in a statewide high school competition. We're not only supposed to sacrifice our families and being there for our families. We're not only supposed to sacrifice feeding our children. We're also supposed to sacrifice our brains. We sacrifice our logic. We sacrifice our reasons because anytime those come into contact with what the church teaches, then it's the logic, it's the reasoning that has to be sacrificed. It is the church that must be maintained at all costs. Elder Suarez finishes the quote, We must not allow him to deceive us. For when we do, we falter in our faith and lose the power to obtain God's blessings. Well, now, that's a pretty funny quote because there's story after story after story told in general conference of faithful Latter-day Saints who do not obtain God's blessings. There is no miracle. There is no healing for them. And yet, Elder Suarez says, when we allow Satan to deceive us, we falter in our faith and lose the power to obtain God's blessings. Well, where are God's blessings for those who don't falter in their faith? 
I don't see any stories about those people. A second example of the warnings against the adversary comes from Neil Anderson, where Elder Anderson says, With increasing temptations, distractions, and distortions, the world attempts to beguile the faithful into dismissing the rich spiritual experiences of one's past, redefining them as foolish deceptions. Now, with all that language, I think what he's saying is that people who have had some sort of spiritual experience that confirmed the truth of Mormonism to them, but later come to understand that things in church history and church doctrine are not what they have been portrayed to them by the leaders, that those people need to stick with their prior experiences. In other words, a feeling, as Elder Rasband says, that the Spirit has been present, a prompting that the church is true, should take priority over anything and everything else that you may learn with your reasoning and logic, per Elder Suarez, that the church may not be everything that it presents itself as being. Elder Ballard gets on this bandwagon as well, and Bill Reel and I talked about this somewhat in the other episode, so I'll just mention it here quickly. Satan's plan, this is the quote, Satan's plan to accomplish his diabolical goal applies to every individual, generation, culture, and society. He uses loud voices, voices that seek to drown out the small and still voice of the Holy Spirit that can show us all things we should do to return and receive. So what are some of these loud voices that Satan uses in order to prevent the Latter-day Saints from returning to Heavenly Father? Here's what he says. These voices may also include well-intentioned individuals who are blinded by the secular philosophies of men and women and who seek to destroy the faith and divert the eternal focus of those who are simply trying to return to the presence of God and receive all that our Father hath. These people are well-intentioned, but they're blinded, and they're out there talking and seeking to destroy faith of those who are just trying to return to Heavenly Father. So that is the obligatory reference to staying away from people on social media or podcasts that talk about alternate ways of viewing the church and its history. And when I say alternate views, I mean views that are alternate to the orthodox narrative that is given by church leaders in General Conference and in the publications of the church. So finally, in conclusion to this podcast, I want to talk about a few random points of interest that came up that I didn't have a chance to talk with Bill Reel about. And I'll go through these as quickly as I can. Elder Rasband, as well as President Eyring, do something that I find somewhat questionable. What they do is they don't simply speak and allow the Spirit to testify as to what they're saying is true. They take the next step and they tell the audience that they are feeling the Spirit. For instance, President Eyring, in the first talk about temple work, talks about the spiritual manifestations that one feels when one does temple work. And he says, quote, you have felt this, as I have, when you have experienced an increase of love as you looked at the picture of an ancestor. So, President Eyring takes something that many people would experience feeling an increase of love when they look at the picture of an ancestor and say, this is you feeling the Spirit of God. This is something showing you that the Spirit of Elijah is at work in the world. When you feel something that many people would feel. It's another example of dumbing down this idea of prophecy and this dumbing down this idea of revelation. I mean, the LDS Church teaches that Elijah came in 1836 in the Kirtland Temple and appeared to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. 
That's when the spirit of Elijah entered into the world. Are we supposed to think that prior to 1836, people did not experience an increase of love when they looked at the picture of an ancestor? And only after 1836 did that phenomenon start occurring? So we can readily see what kind of difficulties this forced interpretation will lead us into. But on top of it, President Eyring doesn't just say this is what he feels or what somebody else has felt. He says, this is what you have felt. And that's the problem I have with this. Because when an apostle of the Lord tells you, this is how you feel when something happens, it makes it obligatory on the audience member to feel the way the apostle tells them that they feel. Because if they don't feel that, then something is wrong with them. The guilt is on them for not feeling the way the apostle tells them to feel. And this happens over and over again in general conference when the speakers say, we have been spiritually fed. We have felt the spirit of God at this conference. So what does that mean then for those who don't feel the spirit of God? Well, the message is clear. Everybody else felt the spirit. Why aren't you feeling the spirit? What is wrong with you? Mormons do guilt better than anybody else I know. And the guilt and the fault is always on the members, never on the church leaders, for giving such incredibly boring and unspiritual talks. Forgive me for that. I know that's a personal opinion. Others may feel differently. If you do, I respect that. But I have rarely felt less of the Spirit of God than I do watching General Conference. And as I went through the different talks and analyzed them closely, I began to see why I feel so little, actually a complete vacuum, of the Spirit of God in General Conference. And one of those reasons is because the Spirit has been sucked out of General Conference, as I've talked about. The dumbing down of the gifts of the Spirit, the dumbing down of miracles, the dumbing down of priesthood blessings. There is no there, there anymore. Going back to President Eyring, he says, You have felt this, as I have, when you have experienced an increase of love, as you looked at the picture of an ancestor. You have felt it in the temple, when the name on a card seemed like more than a name, and you couldn't help but sense that this person was aware of you and felt your love. So that's the end of his quote in this regard. Elder Rasban, in his talk, strikes a similar chord. He says, quote, We have felt an outpouring of the Spirit this weekend. Whether you are here in this great hall or watching from homes or gathered in meeting houses in distant parts of the world, you have had the opportunity to feel the Spirit of the Lord. That Spirit confirms to your hearts and minds the truths taught at this conference. So once again, we have a church leader saying that we have felt the Spirit, you have felt it, it confirms the truth of what we've taught. Really, that's the end of the discussion. We don't even need any response from you to have this conversation take place because we'll tell you everything that you need to know. We'll speak the words, we'll tell you that you felt the Spirit while we spoke the words, and then we'll tell you what that spirit that you felt means, and that is that the church is true. One of the last things I want to talk about was an address by Elder Benjamin de Hoyos, who asks an incredibly good question in his talk. Here's what he asks. What then has the Lord revealed through President Thomas S. Monson that we need to continue doing so our light can be a standard for the nations? What are some of the important things to be done in this brilliant moment of building up Zion and of gathering Israel? I give him kudos for even daring to ask this question. Because indeed the thought has crossed my mind from time to time. Why do we have a living prophet 
on the earth today? Is it to do what President Monson did during this session of conference, was tell us that the Book of Mormon is important and that we need to read from it every day? Really? Is that what we need a prophet of God upon the earth to do? But Elder Hoyos asked the question, What then has the Lord revealed through President Thomas S. Monson that we need to continue doing so our light can be a standard for the nations? He asks the question, but significantly, he never gets around to answering it. He asks what the Lord has revealed through President Thomas S. Monson and never goes back to the question. He never quotes from President Thomas S. Monson again in his talk when you would expect he would be giving lists of what it is that President Thomas S. Monson has said that the Lord has revealed to him. But no, he asks the question, then he drops it dead. And maybe there's a reason for that, and maybe it would have been better for Elder de Hoyos not to have asked the question in the first place rather than to ask it and drop it like a hot potato. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.